Well, good morning. Well, brothers and sisters, our passage this morning in the book of Acts is a unique one, and I wrestled and struggled with it all week, and I'm really not sure who's won yet. Um, we're looking at two scenes as we work our way through the book of Acts, and these are unique scenes in that what I mean is they're, they're things that are not really repeated anymore today. The book of Acts is probably one of the most unique books in the Bible. It's a book of transitions. It's the book uh, directly following the life and ministry of Jesus. So as he came and he lived righteously and perfectly, as he died a death on the cross, as he resurrected, and then he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, this book immediately happens then. But then after the book of Acts, we see a bunch of the letters of First and Second Corinthians or Romans or Colossians, and we see the, the church, the local churches begin to have a lot more structure and doctrine formulated, and there's much more order and organization. But in the book of Acts, it's a bit more of a transition and at times a little messy for us, and this is one of those passages. It reminds me of if you've ever moved houses or you've moved states, maybe your closing date on one house and your signing date on the other kind of overlap, and you kind of own two places, and you have a Ford address, Fording address, and you're not really sure where you live. You've got to update your license. It's just kind of awkward and confusing. That's kind of the book of Acts here because the book of Acts is kind of the transition to a degree from the old covenant to the new, and we're going to see that today. And it's strange, and it's unique, and it's hard to grasp because I'm a person who wants everything to fit neatly in a box, much more black and white. And this passage gave me a run for my money. But I think when we see harder we see strange or unique passages in the Bible, it actually helps us appreciate the normalcy and organization we have today. For example, if you've been on a road trip, um, have you ever had anything bad happen? Maybe you hit bad traffic, maybe you got a flat tire, maybe your kid got sick in the minivan. So then six months or maybe six years because of all the PTSD from that, you go on another road trip and you don't get a flat tire, your kid doesn't get sick in the van, there's no traffic, what happens? You breathe a sigh of relief, and you become so thankful and appreciative for normalcy, for things to happen as they should. I think as we look at some strange, unique things in our text, we're going to become more grateful that we're on this side of the New Testament, and things are a little bit more organized and structured, and we're going to see that clearly. So if you have a Bible... Open up to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be starting in verse 10. Acts chapter 18. Sorry, verse 24, I mean. Verse 24. Reading through chapter 19, verse 10. It's on page 927 of those Bibles in the pew or under the chairs. This is the word of the Lord. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. And when he wished across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those 
through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who wants to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that your word this morning will be sweet to our taste and sweeter than honey to our mouths, as Psalm 119 says. Spirit, help us. Amen. Now, the struggle in preparation for this sermon was, it was a struggle for two reasons. Firstly, it was understanding the passage. To mentally and logically and getting this in an organizational way. Because here's what's strange. In the first scene, we have a man named Apollos, who's described in very positive terms, right? As competent in the Old Testament scriptures. He's described as being fervent in spirit. That means he's passionate about God. He's influential. And it says in verse 25, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And if it stopped right there, we'd be, wow, this is great. This is the guy who's going to lead the church here. But then it says something interesting. It says, despite all of that, though he knew only the baptism of John. He had all of that, but then there was this kind of big piece of the puzzle that's missing in his life. So what happened? Priscilla and Aquila, who we learned last week, take him to the side gently, correct him, show him the greater truth, and then he understands it more, and he's sent back out, and he becomes an influential leader. But to believe in Jesus, to teach accurately the things of God, and yet miss out on the baptism of Jesus is a big deal. And to us, for, some, for many reasons, maybe we can talk about this later, but baptism to us is not really that big of a deal sometimes. But if we go back to this time, well, it should be a big deal now, but we go back to this time, it's a huge deal because baptism was the way that a Christian would publicly proclaim their faith. And for this man to be a preacher of Jesus and miss out on the baptism of Jesus is a huge red flag. Now, John would baptize, as we see in Matthew 3 or Luke 3. He was baptizing for what? To prepare the people for the coming Savior. John the Baptist was the last prophet before Christ. He baptized them for repentance, saying, come and repent and believe and be baptized and wait for the one to come. So when Jesus did come 
and he died and he resurrected, those baptisms of John stopped because there's no more preparation needed because the fulfillment of Jesus has come. So now after Jesus came and people believed, what happened? They were baptized in the name of Jesus and not John. So people would come to faith and the church would baptize them. We see this throughout the book of Acts as we've been studying it. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 8, 12, chapter 8, verses 35 to 37, 10, 48, 16, 14 to 15, chapter 16, verses 31 to 33, chapter 18, verse 8. That's seven references right there. At least seven times before our passage today, people would believe in Jesus and get baptized in the name of Jesus. Baptism was always communicated and given to those who believed, but apparently not for Apollos. He didn't even know of the baptism of Jesus. So that means he was kind of living as if Jesus had not fully come yet. So this is a big deal because baptism was a huge deal in the New Testament. A huge piece of Apollos' puzzle was missing. But the next thing is even stranger. We see Paul coming to Ephesus, and he comes upon a group of about 12 men who appeared to love God, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answer, they say, we don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. And then he says a follow-up question, so were you baptized? And they said, we were baptized with John. So again, we find a group of people here in the New Testament whose pieces of the Christian puzzle are missing, and they're out of order. Because it appears that Apollos was a believer, he had the Holy Spirit, but was not baptized properly. But these 12 men don't even have the Spirit, don't know who the Spirit is, and they don't have proper water baptism. So what does Paul do? He teaches them, he instructs them, and then they get baptized. And they were so evidently transformed that they began to speak in tongues and prophesy to show the validity of the presence of the Holy Spirit there. Now, it's strange to find two stories in Acts, years after Jesus has gone, where things seem a little out of control. And this is a a hard text to fully understand because these men are acting a little bit more like Old Testament believers than New Testament believers. But again, they don't have the full understanding. They don't have a New Testament yet at this point. They have the Old Testament, and they have stories and examples, so they might have missed some things, and that's what makes me very grateful to be living today. We have the full canon of Scripture, the entire Old and New Testament, and as you read throughout the New Testament, you see things become a little bit more clear. As you get to Romans and 1 Corinthians and Colossians, things are much more structured and organized and doctrine formulated, but here it's a bit more messy. Things are kind of outside of this neat box. So it was hard to prepare for this. There's a long answer. The second reason why this was hard was because when you preach, you're not just to explain the logic and the mental meaning of the passage. It's also to exhort and apply to the hearts and the affections of the people. And if this, if these pieces of the puzzle are missing and we're not supposed to uh, kind of follow and imitate this, what are we supposed to do with this passage? If it's a little out of order, what do we do? Well, we'll figure that out very soon together. But what we like to do every week here is give the main point. So as we read that text, as we kind of give a little bit of introduction to it, what's the big idea? What's God communicating to us at CBC this morning from this passage? Here it is. By God's act of saving you, 
you now have the Holy Spirit. Now, Christian, God is calling you to act out your new spiritual life. So when God saved you, Christian, he gave you the Holy Spirit, and your job is to act out that new spiritual reality that you have. And we're going to see that because things are a little out of order in our text, so we're going to put them in order together. By looking at this passage, I want us to see what clearly happens when someone becomes a Christian. Let's say you have a neighbor or a family member that you've been praying for to come to know Jesus. Let's say by the Lord's grace, they come to know Jesus. What happens to them? What is spirit baptism? What is water baptism? What is discipleship? How do these things go together? Let's put the pieces to the puzzle together. There's three elements here. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, water baptism, and discipleship. So let's look first at spirit baptism. We're going to call this the one-time act of spirit baptism. In verse 2 of chapter 19, Paul asked these group of men, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said no, and it's not till verse 6 when Paul lays his hands on them that the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now that is not normal. That is not normative. So what actually happens here? Well, if you are a Christian, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, the moment you do that, you receive the Holy Spirit instantaneously. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a gift of God to you at the moment you confess your sin and you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. When you believe that Jesus died for your sin and resurrected to give you new life, then God baptizes or immerses or covers you in the Holy Spirit. That means your old nature of impurity, of sin, of shame, of wickedness are now cast out and you are baptized with the Spirit who is holy and pure and righteous and you have new life. See, the Holy Spirit is is God. The Holy Spirit is a person, a he, not an it, not an energy, not the force from some sci-fi movie. The Holy Spirit is God, and he's not like JV, junior varsity God. He is God, and he is living within you if you've confessed him, confessed Jesus as Lord, and we have one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equal and all share the same attributes of holiness and glory and perfection, all share the same attributes, all are unified together, and yet they are distinct in their roles of ministering to you. And to summarize what the Holy Spirit does to Christians overall is He communicates and delivers the blessings of Jesus to you. Jesus died on the cross for your forgiveness. How do you receive that forgiveness? When you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit brings that forgiveness to you, and then you are covered in that forgiveness. He is the one who brings you all the spiritual blessings of Jesus. He's the messenger, the communicator. And now if you believe in Jesus, he lives within you to point you and remind you of all that you already have in Jesus. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In Jesus, in Him, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him. At that moment of salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It's the Holy Spirit who seals, secures, 
confirms, makes happen the gospel and the blessings of Jesus in your life. He holds it still in you, and you can't escape him. Forever he gives you, he seals the promises of Jesus, and he lives in you, and nothing can take that away from you. It's like if you have one of those, you open up your fridge and you pull out one of those pickle jars that you can barely open. You grab a towel, you grab a spoon, you try to get it open. That seal is so hard to break sometimes. Right? The Holy Spirit's like that, except you can never open it up. No one can open up the seal of the Holy Spirit and take away your salvation or your forgiveness. No one can touch the pickle jar of the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into the Spirit, covered, immersed. There's nothing that can take that away from us. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit is not just for some special Christians who are mature enough, who pray enough, who give enough. It's for all Christians. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, you're part of the body, the church, the universal church. And what do we all have in common? That we all are baptized into the same Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is the one-time act that happens at the moment you heard the word of truth, as Ephesians 1.13 says. When we hear the word of truth, the gospel, and we believe it, the Spirit comes in and dwells within us and keeps us part of the family of God. For the rest of your human life, until you reach eternity, the third member of the Trinity lives within you, constantly pointing you to the already finished work of Christ. This event, this baptism happens once, and it's God who does it. It's an act of God. And there's some groups out there that believe the baptism of the Spirit is a special, unique, secondary baptism that happens later on in your life when you're mature enough or when God wants to give it to you. No, the baptism of the Spirit is for all people who believe in Jesus, and it happens the moment you believe. You're immersed in the Spirit, and you can feel nothing but the Spirit. Your soul is fully covered by the Spirit. When I was in high school, I did a polar plunge, and that's the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. It's where you get in the dead, when you get in the pool, like in a pool or a lake in the dead of winter. And in January, one year, we jumped into a friend's pool, uh, which proves that peer pressure is a reality, teenagers. But when you jump into this pool, especially when it's extremely cold, there's a split second when you're like, oh, I can do this. And then a split second later, you realize, I can't do this. But you're so cold, you're so immersed in this cold water that's almost like you freeze and you can't get out of the water. You're so covered in this that it feels like to the veins in my physical body that there's ice there. When we get baptized in the Spirit, when we believe in Jesus, we become so immersed and so consumed with the Spirit that it's like we can't move. But that's a good thing. We are so covered, not in the icy cold water, but in the warmth of God. And no matter what comes after us, our sin, our past, our messiness, nothing can move us out of the warmth of God's baptism. It's God himself immersing us and dunking us into his love and the blessings of Jesus. And in the veins of our soul, we are fully submerged into him. 
So Christians, you have received this baptism. You have the Holy Spirit in you. That doesn't mean he literally has a home and a mailbox in your beating heart. This means he has fully dunked you into his presence that you can't escape him. God himself, the creator of the world, the all-perfect, the all-glorified God is in you. And this spirit will guide your life. Enlighten your eyes to see and understand. Scripture affects your conscience. He will lead you in your life. Does many things. But know this truth. No matter what you feel, no matter what you experience, you as a Christian can never be closer to God than you are right now. Because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling and residing in you. God can never be distant from you you are so connected and unified with Christ through the Spirit the moment you are saved. But if this already happened to you and you're a Christian, what's the point? How does this apply to you on a day-to-day basis, the fact that you're baptized in the Spirit? Well, a couple things. First of all, you need to be encouraged by this. You need to be encouraged that God loves you so much that He lives within you. Yes, the same God who knew your sins and your secrets, and your addictions, and all those things, and yet he said, I'm going to reside in you. You may feel unholy. You may not feel like you're worth it, that your life is a mess. And yet God is living in you. God even loves you when you slip up, when you're depressed. God is in you and saved you. Be encouraged that God himself has taken his home within you. But second of all, we should be holy. If the Holy Spirit lives within you, then we need to act like the Holy Spirit lives within you. We need to have our actions and our thoughts and our feelings match up with who the trueness of ourselves are. We have a new identity. We are the home, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The purity of God is within us. So is that affecting how we live? So we should be holy and obedient. We should fight sin and we should pursue justice and we should love each other. We are baptized and fully covered in him. So let's live it. Let's live like God. But thirdly, I want to say, if you are baptized in the Spirit, then you should be bold. You should be bold if the very one who delivered the salvation of Jesus to you lives within you, then what is stopping us from sharing the gospel? What else do we need? If we have God within us, what is stopping us? And this convicts me because Sometimes I feel embarrassed sometimes to share the gospel with people. I feel maybe unequipped, but then I step back and I realize I have the Holy Spirit in me. That's who saved me. What else would I need? We have the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us and protecting us. We have all we need. He gives us wisdom and He leads us. So go boldly because you have God. So it's a one-time act of God to baptize you in the Spirit happens at the moment of salvation, and you gain the effects and the fruit of that for the rest of your Christian life. In this passage, it might come when Paul laid on hands, but for you, it's when with your mouth you confess Jesus as Lord. Let's keep moving. Let's look at one other act here found in this passage next. We'll call this the one-time act of water baptism. It's spirit baptism, but then also mentioned is water baptism. 
In verse 25 of chapter 18, we see Apollos was a great teacher about Jesus, knew the scriptures, was passionate, and yet he lacked the knowledge of water baptism of Jesus. It took a few Christians bringing him to the side to inform him. The 12 men in Ephesus there in chapter 19 were only aware of John's baptism. So then Paul baptized them and told them about that. So water baptism is mentioned twice in these two stories. But what does the rest of the New Testament say about water baptism? Well, I mentioned the other seven references in the book of Acts so far where belief in Jesus leads to baptism in water. They were literally dunked underwater when they responded to the gospel. This was the normal expected practice of churches and Christians in the New Testament. But beyond that, let's go to the famous passage of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It says, And Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. She said, go into the world. If you're following me, go into the world, share the gospel, make disciples. And a disciple is not one who just learns the facts of Jesus intellectually, though that's important, but also follows the example of Jesus and does what he says. And what does Jesus say to do? To baptize people who believe in Jesus. Disciples are people who listen and follow Jesus. But what is water baptism? Is it some cult, weird practice that we do? Why, why is the water is it special? Is it holy? Is it from Israel? Is it Chippewa Springs water? What is it? Why do some baptize infants and some only baptize adults? These are great questions because if you stroll into a church and you don't know anything about baptism and you see one person getting dunked underwater and everyone clapping, you have no idea what's going on. It would look weird. But what is water baptism? Well, I think Romans chapter 6 helps us out here. Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says, so the moment you become a Christian, you are baptized, immersed, covered into Jesus. We die to our sins, and we resurrect to new life. When we come to faith... Our old selves, my, my sin, my shame, my secrets, my addiction, all that stuff that's against God is then baptized into Jesus' death. So when Jesus literally and physically died, it's as if my sins and my shame and my guilt literally died with Jesus. His death consumed me, wrapped up my sin and my shame. And the old Troy died, praise the Lord. And then when, when, when Jesus resurrected into the newness of life, his resurrection, his newness covered, my, covered me. And now I am given new life. His new life gave me new life. So I am walking in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, baptized into him. The Spirit has baptized us into Christ. And that's why Jesus wants us to be baptized into water. Not to save us, not to transform us, but to do a real tangible, physical act to announce to the world that we have been baptized into Jesus. 
Baptism may be the first act you make in your new spiritual life, but I want to mention a few things about it. Why do we baptize in water? Why not Kool-Aid? We baptize in water because water, for the longest time, has represented the washing away. The washing away of sins. It mentions that in Acts 22, 16. The washing away of sins. Now, we've already been washed away when we believe in Jesus, but when we get into a pool of water before the congregation and we go under and come up, it says, this person has already been made clean by Jesus. They are forgiven. Also, why we fully go under the water in baptism. For a couple reasons. Firstly, the word in the New Testament for baptism means to immerse to dunk, to be fully submerged under the water. We don't just put our toes in and say, we're good. It's also why we don't sprinkle here. We believe that going under the water is the most biblically literal meaning. But also when we go fully under the water, what does that represent theologically? We are fully made clean by Jesus. Not just a part, not just a little bit, but we are fully submerged Underwater, which communicates my whole self has been made new by Jesus. When we dunk someone under the water, it represents them going under the grave and them coming up when the water splashing off their hair, off their face. It's a celebration that they have been consumed by the resurrection of Jesus. They have new life. Just a perfect kind of word picture for us to look at as a congregation and say, this person, this is what happened to this person internally. We get to see it physically. It's a symbol. When you get baptized, you are doing a few things. If you're the one sitting in our baptismal tank over here and you get baptized, you're doing at least three things for us. You are communicating to Jesus himself that you're going to obey him with your life. Jesus says, go get baptized. When you get baptized, you're showing to Jesus You're all about him. You're going to do as he says. He is the master and you are the follower. You are being obedient and that gives God glory. But also you're communicating to the church that you have been saved. You are saying, I have been made clean by Jesus. I want you all to know and to celebrate with me. And we get to see your public announcement that you have been made new and made clean by Jesus. And you get to show us in a word, sensory way of the gospel. But then also you're, you're communicating your commitment to the church in Christ. Right, we baptize people in a local church here. We don't just go to your, you know, your private hot tub or pool and baptize you. We do it in front of a congregation because throughout Acts and those seven references, local churches baptize people and add them to the church so that you can say to us, I'm with you on this journey and we're saying with you, we're with you on this journey. Welcome to the team. So this is, not, this is why we, we, we don't baptize infants. We don't sprinkle infants. We don't believe that is an actual baptism according to Scripture. We baptize those who've confessed and believed in Jesus, and the water baptism proclaims, I have already been saved. So being baptized is like wearing a team jersey. right? It's, you technically can make the football team without the jersey, but on Friday night when you show up to play the game, and you choose not to wear the jersey, what is that communicating to the team? So what's this application here? Well, firstly, if you've not been baptized since you became a Christian, it's to get baptized. 
to be obedient to Jesus, period. And for some of you, you are scared, and I get it. Some of you don't like being seen. You'd rather be in the back row, you'd rather be in the crowd kind of blending in, and I understand that. I don't, I'm not that way, I'm way too loud, I'm sorry, but I get the fear. Some of you are scared of water, and I get that's a real fear. And some of you are, are fearful that you've been at this church for five years or 50 years. You've been up here singing. You've been up here. You've spoken. You've been in Sunday school class. You've rocked people's babies. And you're wondering, if I finally get baptized, they're all going to look at me and say, wow, he or she, they're late to the ball game." But if baptism is a way for you to display your obedience and for a way for you to display the gospel to us, we will do nothing but celebrate the fact that we got to see the gospel on display, and you did that for us, and you would minister to us. So whether you've been a Christian for one week or 40 years, be baptized if you've not been baptized. That is the clearest application of a sermon you could see. Find someone near you, they will bring you to an elder or a leader, someone on stage, and we will get the ball rolling for your baptism. We'd love to celebrate with you what Jesus has already done in your life. But the other application here is, for those of you who are ministering to others, maybe you are evangelizing, maybe you're discipling, maybe you're doing ministry at our church, lead people to baptism. Jesus says, go and make disciples, teaching them, and we do that pretty well, I believe. But then also is baptizing them. Do we lead people to baptism? You might get to walk with someone into faith and teach them how to read the Bible, teach them about Jesus, teach them about church, and you get to kind of point them to take a public step of saying their faith, and that would be pretty cool. That's part of discipleship. We don't just want people saved. We want people saved and following Jesus closely and being baptized is one of those things. So in both scenes here, we have two baptisms. We have the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of water, and both are applicable today. At the moment of salvation, you are baptized in the Spirit, and then we pray soon after, or sometime after, you are baptized in water. Both are one-time acts. You don't need to be re-baptized in the Spirit. It's impossible. You don't need to be re-baptized in water. But we're going to finish with one more act in this passage, and this is an ongoing act. It's not just a one-day act. It's a one-day-every-day-for-the-rest-of-your-life act. The ongoing act of discipleship. Discipleship means following Jesus. Yes, he saved us. But now every day we are to follow him closer and closer. His example, his words, his character, his commands. And we see it a few times here in the passage. Look again at verse 26 about Apollos. It says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So picture this, you have Apollos, who's just kind of up and coming, rising star in the synagogue teaching, competent in the scriptures, probably had a lot of the Old Testament memorized. He's fervent and excited. He's passionate, probably influential. He says he taught about Jesus. And yet what happens? Priscilla and Aquila come and take him to the side and say, you're off on this. All this is good, but you're missing this piece of the puzzle. And in his pride, he could have rejected their rebuke. He could have said, look at my following. I'm doing pretty good. I know the Old Testament. And yet, he cared more about following Christ than about his own reputation and status. He was willing to be corrected by a couple. He was willing to learn from someone. He was willing to change his life and his doctrine according to Scripture. 
he was constantly following Jesus more and more. So then what happened? Apollos took this new knowledge he learned, and he went to Corinth, Achaia, verse 27. And it says in verse 27, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He took what he learned about Jesus and helped others follow Jesus more closely. So church, every day we are called to take discipleship seriously. Your salvation is a huge moment. Your water baptism is a huge moment. But your every single day of following Jesus more closely is a priority as well. So are we like Apollos, willing to receive instruction from the Bible? From our brothers and sisters in Christ who love us, are we willing to be more like Jesus every day? The Spirit has made us holy. He's brought us into Christ. He's given us new life. He's given us a new identity. But every day is our identity and our actions and thoughts and feelings and our reactions to people in this world matching up together. We need our reality of who our soul is to match up with our daily living. We need to be better disciples, follow closely. I had a youth pastor when I was in seventh grade who did something that's pretty ordinary in the Christian world, and yet I've reaped the fruit and, and benefits of that the rest of my life. In seventh grade, over a course of about a month or two, he sat me down once a week and taught me how to read the Bible. He literally opened up to a book of the Bible, and we'd read it, and we'd stop, and we'd talk about it, we'd ask questions, we'd read another section, and we'd go, and we'd go on, and we'd go on. And every day for the rest of my life, My life has been different and more fruitful, and I'm reaping that because a man did an ordinary disciple-making thing. He taught me the Bible. I need discipleship. I mean, even every Thursday morning at 9 a.m., Alan and I are in there reading the Bible together. We're praying. We're sharing about our requests and our struggles, and we're discipling. Why? Because we need it. All of us need to look more like Jesus every single day, and we need people to pour into us, to rebuke us, to correct us. We all need that, and I love that Apollos' example here is what we came to today. We all need to follow Jesus closely. So what's some, to finish this up, what's some, maybe some simple application for you to follow Jesus closer as a disciple? Well, first of all, we're going to say this, read your Bible. Apollos did not see his lack of knowledge until a friend showed out the truth of God. If we're not willing to read the Bible, which is the very word of God, which the Holy Spirit inspired, then how can we grow in the faith? How can we know who God is? How can we know the commands of God, like being baptized? The Bible is the primary place where the Holy Spirit matures us in the faith, opens our eyes to see the wonders of God's word. So start in the Bible. If you don't know where to start, Maybe try the book of Mark or the book of James and take a chapter a day. But also, if you want to continue to be a faithful disciple, what should you do? I think you should receive the ministry of the church and your friends. We're not here as individuals, per se. Yes, you might be fed as an individual today. You might be encouraged. But we also exist as a body to point each other to Jesus. So keep coming to CBC. Come to Sunday mornings. Go to adult Sunday school. Get plugged into a Bible study or a small group. We have studies going on. Be around Christians who are opening, the, literally opening their Bible, talking about it, and praying for you. Because what happens when that happens? They encourage you. 
They might teach you something about God that makes you love God all the more. They might actually show you a blind spot you have in your life that through the Spirit they show you and you correct. What if you need someone to cry on their shoulder as you read the Bible? Well, that person will be here. Make Christian friends here. Have one or two that you can call in a moment and say, I need prayer. I need help. I'm about to sin. We need that here. That's discipleship. That's coming alongside each other and pointing each other to Jesus. And if you're looking for someone to invest in you personally, let someone know. Let an elder know. Let someone on stage know. We will find somebody for you to read the Bible with you and to pray with you. But third and finally, so you read the Bible, receive ministry from other people, but also who can you minister to? Disciple someone else. You may think, well, I've only been a Christian for a month, for a year. I don't know. I've not read many Christian books. I've not read the Bible all the way through, but guess what? You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have a Bible. You can pray, and maybe there's someone that you can minister to, that you can influence to follow Jesus more closely. So maybe that means you come to church, you get to know each other, and you ask, hey, can you give me an hour every week? And we sit down and we read together, and I invest in you and you invest in me. Or you come to our youth ministry as a leader or a kid's blast, and you say, I want to disciple children. We have opportunities, but it's walking around thinking, how can I help someone else follow Jesus more closely? Have you ever thought about what you would want God to say to you when you get to heaven? Well, as a member here, one of the things that comes to mind is this. I would love God to say, CVBC looked a lot like Jesus. You guys followed Jesus closely. I would love to hear God say that when we get to heaven. There'd be so much joy and happiness in our souls to hear that, that when we come together as a congregation, we live out what Christ has called us to do. So brothers and sisters, do you want to be on board with that? Do you need to be baptized? Do you need to be poured into and discipled and know more about God? Do you need to invest in someone else and take what, the, what God has given you and use it for His glory elsewhere? This is our time, and I know this for a fact, that the Lord will bless us as we live out His Word. He will do that. Let's pray. Father, we pray out of thankfulness that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that we can understand Scripture, that we can be saved, that we can be forgiven, that we can be cleansed. I pray that we do not forsake the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we as a church will grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus as we minister to each other, as we receive that ministry. Spirit, do a work. Call us out for what we need to be called out for. Encourage us to continue to do what we need to do. But overall, we want this church and our individual lives to follow Jesus more closely every single day. Jesus, thank you for saving us and redeeming us and getting rid of our old selves so that we can walk in the newness of life. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.